Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to this week's Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark with your weekly serving of politics. Going back to the mace thing, I thought that was hilarious because it was like Brexit in metaphor. It was <laughs> someone who kind of... Um, seized control and then quickly realised they didn't know what to do with it. And culture. And in, in, in some ways, the most important political publication of the year um, has been Donald Trump's tweets. In this broadcast a bit later on, we're going to be hearing from Martin Rees, who's the Astronomer Royal, about whether the finite human brain can ever really make sense of the infinite mysteries of our ever-expanding universe. Many ideas which are crucial to understanding our complex world may be beyond our full comprehension. More of that later on in the programme, but first, back on Earth we seem to be approaching the end of the world as we know it. I say as I'm looking at our colleague Alex Dean, who's our political correspondent, and of course we're also joined by Samir Rahim, who's our culture editor. Um, first of all, um, Alex, um, there has been mayhem. Yes, Tom, it's gone from one shambolic scene to the next. The big event, of course, was meant to be this evening. Uh, The government was going to bring its Brexit deal to the Commons and MPs were going to have a say. So worried was the government about the scale of defeat that they pulled it last minute. And today, uh, or, you know, it depends when you're listening to the podcast, but... At the start of this week, Theresa May has dashed off to Brussels uh, and actually other European capitals in a, in a panic, uh, desperately trying to secure some more concessions. The interesting thing is whether she'll be able to secure them, and if so, on what part of the treaty. It seems as though the withdrawal agreement actually setting out the exit terms is legally binding, and the EU has insisted that it won't reopen that. And I think, in my view, we'd be wise to take them at their word on that. Well, let's wait and see that. I mean, in... The Commons itself, though, I mean, the, the the mood was summed up by the Labour MP who walked out or tried to walk out with the mace. The meaningful vote that we've spent most of this year talking about, uh, you and I, perhaps, Alex, more than most, is that going to happen at all now? Or is Theresa May deliberately going to play things so long that it will be meaningless and it really will be her way or the highway? Yeah, I mean, just going back to the mace thing, I thought that was hilarious because it was like Brexit in metaphor. It was <laughs> someone who kind of... Um, seized control and then quickly realised they didn't know what to do with it. Um, <laughs> on on, uh, on your actual question, I think she has to hold a vote at some point and there's huge confusion, and I'm as confused as anyone on this, as to the 
deadline date and it was originally the 21st of January but I gather that's now been superseded seen Yvette Cooper talking about it Justine Greening asked something in the comments about it yesterday House of Commons libraries got involved actually there's a huge amount of confusion about when the vote has to be held by but it does have to be held at some point I think what may can't be March the 25th or something because I know if there's no deal if she's got no deal to sell then she has to say something by the 21st of that, January. that's exactly right um so but she has got a deal but if she wants to string it out for a bit longer what's to stop her yeah exactly I think um it's kind of a, a horrible dawning realization that it might literally be <laughs> you know 11 p.m uh, you know one minute to 11 or whenever we leave on on the 29th of March and I think that's probably her game. But is can to, she survive that? Because that really is treating Parliament with contempt, isn't it? It's going to say, I'm going to give you a choice when you don't have a choice. That's You've summed up the question exactly. You've summed up the choice, uh, uh, the difficulty. I think what she's hoping is that if she leaves it really last minute, um, the pressure will be so great that MPs will cave and, and go with her. But as you say, MPs aren't going to kind of not pay attention in their answer that they'll know that they're being cut out from the process of course the most contentious part of all of this is the northern ireland backstop which was always going to be controversial but is it seems to be antagonizing all sorts of different groups for all sorts of different reasons alex can i just leap in there um we talk a lot about the backstop but it's actually never quite explained what the backstop is so what what exactly is it and why is it so controversial it's totally fair question it I think everyone knows the word backstop is associated with Brexit. And if you're a bit of a, you know, a bit in the bubble, you, you, you connect it with Northern Ireland. But that's about as far as the average person's understanding of it goes. Basically, the backstop is an insurance policy. That's the way to think about it. It's an insurance policy guaranteeing no hard border on the island of Ireland. What that means is, in practice, what we're hoping for is that the f through kind of future trading relationship or whizzy technological solutions about kind of cameras tracking number plates and all kind of fancy stuff there, maybe some sort of trusted trader schemes or even combination of those things, we can find a way that Northern Ireland can diverge from the Republic of Ireland in a kind of substantial way without having to impose a border. The backstop is set up such that if that never happens, if we don't get there, we, we stay aligned enough, the two halves stay aligned enough that we don't need a border anyway. Um, so the, the two halves being Ireland, North and South? Yes. So the Brexiteers hate it because they hate the alignment. They don't view it as proper Brexit. Northern Ireland would stay very closely aligned and the UK at large would stay pretty closely aligned in things like the customs union in parts of the single market, there's all sorts of level playing field provisions and so on as well. So the Brexiteers don't view it as a proper Brexit. That That's that's uh, one constituency that hates the backstop. The other constituency that hates the backstop is the DUP and kind of unionist, you know, in, in other parties, including, I think, Theresa May, um, because the backstop would see a border down the Irish Sea cutting off Northern Ireland from the mainland UK uh, in, in such a way that Theresa May previously said would be unacceptable to any UK Prime Minister. Now, actually, that was back when it was going to be a customs border. It's not going to be a customs border now, but it's still going to be a regulatory border. I, it's hugely complicated, um, but the key thing to take away is that there's all sorts of different groups who hate it for all sorts of different reasons. <laughs> Last word in this section on the speaker. 
He's talked about Parliament being treated discourteously. He's already, we know, a very controversial figure, despite being a former Conservative MP himself with other Conservative MPs. He's also a figure who said that he's not necessarily going to stick around forever. Is he going to be the person to watch in the close of 2018 and the start of 2019 for where Brexit ends up? Yeah, it's interesting. Burko is becoming incredibly controversial. Um, there's been all sorts of problems as well with with uh, alleged bullying and, and so on. Over the last few days, it's, it seems to have reached fever pitch. And I gather, although I didn't actually hear it, that Andrea Leadsom made some comments on the Today programme that were pretty unprecedented for a cabinet minister to make about a speaker and, and, and you know, quite serious. Um, and then I think Burko got caught trying to say something secretively that got picked up on a microphone and saying like utter nonsense or something in the commons when an MP was speaking the other day and he was hoping he wasn't heard um so you know just in terms of who's saying what it's all getting quite controversial but then there's the issue of amendments and when they come and he's actually got a huge amount of control in the order and the proceedings of the thing as we all know and as our listeners will know who controls the order of things in parliament often controls the end result Gosh, so uh, plenty as ever, uh, despite the small number of days left to Brexit, there's um, as much for us to watch as there ever was. Samir, let's um, talk to slightly um, loftier things now and bluer skies. You've been looking at books of the year for Prospect. Uh, Absolutely, Tom. But some of these books do, in fact, speak to the kind of issues that we've been just discussing. I thought it might be interesting, rather than pick out individual books, although I will be doing a bit of that, to look at some of the themes that have been bubbling up um, in the books world over the last year. Certainly when it comes to politics books, the failure of democracy to account for people's desires um, and democracy not seeming to be giving people what they actually want is uh, is a prominent uh, theme. So, of course, we've had all the Trump books this year, which um, which I've talked about before, so I won't go in too much to that. But... Um, uh, How Democracy Ends by uh, David Runciman. Gloomy title. Uh, yeah, and uh, The People Versus Democracy uh, by Yasha Monk. Two particularly good books this year. Um, both investigating really what it means when um, a society votes for something that politicians can't really deliver in practice. And what, what does actually happen to... Um, uh, uh, the politicians when the levers that they are trying to pull um, don't work anymore. I mean, we're seeing it right now with Macron in, in France, but we're also seeing it with the Brexit process as well. And why, if at all, is this different? We've had democracy, roughly one person, one vote for roughly 100 years. Politicians have always been tempted to, like, promise the earth in order to get into office and then delivering the earth is often difficult. Why now, in the last few years, does it seem like we're running into more trouble with it than before? The argument really is about globalisation. You know, governments have less power over their own countries because they decided to pull power, for example, in the European Union, or to strike free trade deals, like in uh, the United States, uh, with other countries that, uh, you know, arguably were detrimental to at least some of the people in society. But then when you elect people or vote for uh, propositions that try and reverse that tendency, you then run up against the huge practical difficulty of renegotiating a free trade deal or uh, pulling out of NATO or opposing NATO or 
um, you know, Brexit. Um, so the question really is, is how democratic were the decisions that were made in the past? Um, perhaps not quite as democratic as, uh, as we think, or at least there was, a, there was an alignment between um, people's economic interests and, uh, um, and what they felt the interests uh, of the elites felt uh, the country to be as well. But now there's been a divergence on that. Um, the people want something different. But often that's expressed in ways that will, you know, right-wing populism or nationalism or essentially emotional or identity uh, reactions, if you want to put, put, put it that way. Samir, um, politicians face a huge challenge of implementing these impossible promises, Brexit being the obvious example. But is there a case that uh, things aren't being made any easier by the calibre of, caliber of our politicians um, and actually... It's kind of we've got minnows uh, on the political stage, and even though these tasks are difficult, if we had uh, better politicians, and I'm thinking particularly of one book uh, by Isabel Hardman, um, which I read and it was brilliant, and I know that you picked out as one of your favourites. If we had better politicians, maybe they'd at least be doing, a, if not nailing the job, at least kind of giving it a better effort. Yes, there's that question of talent, isn't it? Why do politicians seem to be? Um, not as good as they were. What, what what is it about our political system? It's it's the cynicism really that makes people feel that you know they're all in it for themselves and um, they're treating it as a career rather than um, anything else. Now I don't know. I, I think politicians have always been idealists and careerists at the same time, um, but there does seem to be a sort of lack of statesmanship going on at the moment, doesn't there? Um. You didn't mention social media, which is the other, everyone's their own editor, that's meant to be very liberating, but that's sometimes seen as the other reason why you're able to have um, these campaigns that promise insane things able to take charge of our politics now. Well, yeah, we've seen a democratisation of um, expression and uh, we've removed filters uh, you know, personal filters, um, political filters, institutional filters, um, so that, you know, a Donald Trump uh, mad tweet um, is uh, seems in some ways to uh, uh, take over the news cycle whenever whenever he says anything. It's, it's quite extraordinary. And in, and in some ways, the most important political publication of the year um, has been Donald Trump's tweets. He can change the message whenever he wants to. He can energise his base, throw out um, different accusations against people to distract um, um, from what's actually actually going on. I mean, it all also links into economics fundamentally as well, Tom, which is you know your your expert subject. Um, and a lot of the books this year have been saying, well, what are the actual root causes of um, our instability? And and it is a capitalism that's going to run out of control. So I mean, um, Adam Tooze's book, um, Crash, which is a sort of magnum opus um, about why the 2008 crash was actually a lot different from what you uh, thought it was going to be. But people like Mariana Mazzucato and Robert Skidelsky have made the argument that, um, economically speaking, we're not um, we're not succeeding um, as we were in the West, and um, we need to sort of tame capitalism a bit more. Um, a lot of books have been coming out like that. Um, the question is, and maybe I can ask you this: Would you know, is there the political will to make some of the really difficult decisions that might need to be made, um, economically speaking? Um, to you know, rebalance the economy or tame the city, as Nicholas Shackson wants us to do. I think there's political will by the people who don't like capital or the city to to change things quite radically. But whether they can build a consensus to do it in the way 
that an orderly democratic politics would have done before is a is a more difficult question. We should wrap this up, but I should also say that as well as economics and politics, Samir goes on and looks at ideas and history and science. So do pick up the uh, double midwinter issue of the magazine for all of Prospect's full uh, list of books of the year. Um, but for now, I'll say thanks to Alex and to Samir, and we'll go over to this week's main interview. Martin Rees, the Astronomer Royal, welcome to Prospect Magazine. Your recent book is entitled On the Future, Prospects for Humanity. Uh, it's uh, an enticing title and it's suggestive of the book's uh, reach uh, and its ambition. Um, you also very uh, kindly uh, prepared a piece drawing on uh, some ideas that you outlined in that book, which will uh, be published in Prospect recently. Um, it was a fascinating piece. The title uh, that we gave is The End of All Our Exploring. Um, one of the points that you make uh, is about the, the post-human future, and I think it's fair to say that the piece largely uh, turns to the question of what that future might be. Um, you write that we must confront the question of what humans can hope to understand. Parts of the physical world are understood. They can be observed and described by theories but much of it cannot. Now, that's an intriguing uh, statement. Well, I was really making the point that uh, we humans aren't the culmination of evolution. No astronomer could believe that because we know very well that the Earth's been around for four and a half billion years, but the sun's less than halfway through its life still, so we may not be even the halfway stage in the emergence of wonderful complexity in the universe, and therefore there's no particular reason to think that our brains are matched to understanding all the aspects of reality. Any more than a monkey clearly can't understand quantum theory, but there may be deep aspects of reality that we will never understand and never comprehend even with the aid of computers. So I just feel that the universe could be more mysterious than anything we will realise. And uh, I think I say in the article, this may have to await post-humans. And uh, another theme of my book on the future is that uh, future evolution is going to be not Darwinian selection. It's going to be, in a sense, a secular version of intelligent design. Uh, when uh, uh, we will design machines with perhaps superhuman intelligence, and they go on designing still more. Uh, so the future may lie in electronic, uh, not flesh and blood intelligences. Uh, to take up for one moment perhaps the, the cudgels on uh, behalf of humanity, um, huma human thought has superseded the bounds that one would expect from the animal. Um, and we have obtained insights using theories like quantum theory and also Einstein's theory of relativity and, and so forth. It is what you're saying then that there will necessarily come a point uh, beyond which human cognition can't go, that the stuff of reality will prove ultimately to be too complex? Well, we may understand the underlying bedrock of physics, but uh, we may never, in principle, be able to understand fully our human brain. And it's true that machines may, in fact, have some algorithmic understanding, but that's not the same as actually comprehending something. We may be able to calculate and show that we're on the right lines, but I think many ideas which are crucial to understanding our complex world may be beyond our full comprehension. And, of course, machines um, have a capability but not comprehension. I recall 
the physicist Richard Feynman. He gave a series of lectures, uh, which are, can be seen on YouTube, in fact, called The Character of Physical Law, which mm-hmm. were made into a book. Yes. In part of his d- discussions, he drew what effectively was a mind map of how he regarded scientific theories as being all interrelated, such that, for example, magnetism and electricity mm-hmm. can be resolved into one theory of electromagnetism. Mm-hmm. Um, is this view of certain... Uh, parts of human uh, of, of, of understanding being off limits uh, to undermine that view of there being this interrelation between concepts and theories no I think I would buy that structure and realize that uh, si- physics may indeed be a simple subject um, maybe we can't understand the complexities of the brain of biology. And in fact, Feynman himself gave a rather nice analogy. Uh, he said that uh, uh, understanding physics, is like understanding the rules of the game of chess. But understanding the rules is just a simple preliminary to the uh, vast progression from being a novice to being a grandmaster. And it's the complexity that's allowed by those rules, which is the real challenge. And that is where we may come across our limits. So this complexity emerges from a series, of, from, from like the small print of physics, right. effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are some of the uh, ideas uh, that you see human cognition uh, butting up against the limits of? Well, I think the most obvious one is understanding the human brain and consciousness. And clearly, we are making huge progress in developing uh, computers which can certainly think a million times faster than us in the sense of doing calculations much faster. And, of course, as we saw in the uh, success of the uh, uh, um, Google DeepMind um, AlphaGo computer, it was able, through its speed, to become world-class. Now, this, in, was, this is the board game Go. In Go, and also it. in chess. Yeah. It was just given the rules. And by playing against itself several times per second, by the end of a day, it was as good as a grandmaster. And the people who programmed it don't themselves know exactly how it did it and how it decides to make particularly clever moves. So that's an example where computers can actually help us by doing things that we can't ourselves fully understand. Does that unnerve you at all? It doesn't. I think um, if we revert back to um, more everyday matters and short-term matters, we know that computers are now being used to uh, make decisions and give advice on whether we should be let out of prison, uh, whether we need an operation, and indeed whether the bank should give us credit. And they're doing this on the basis of having analysed large amounts of data. And I think already there's a concern that we feel that if something is done to our detriment, we are entitled to an explanation and to contest it. And already uh, we are having a situation where we may not be able to contest the decisions of the machine uh, it may not be that anyone knows exactly how it came to decisions, and there could be some hidden bug. So even if the machine has a record of being a better judge than any human in these contexts, we still, I think, are right to be concerned and to feel that we ought to be given an explanation that we can understand of anything which happens to us. And that's just an example already of how the uh, machines are um, making decisions and doing calculations which we can't fully follow externally. And from the question of the human brain in the piece that you wrote for us, you project um, 
uh, unimaginable distances out into the universe, and uh, and uh, that inevitably brings uh, almost paradoxical kind of thoughts into play, which you express um, uh, very beautifully in, in the piece. I mean, you you mentioned for starters the, the famous monkeys on typewriters uh, analogy, <laughs> and have some fun with that. But then you come to the more serious and and in a way more. Uh, intuitively troubling notion uh, of the idea of the multiverse, the idea that there may be other universes in which different physical laws apply. Yes, well, the argument here is that perhaps what we think of as the bedrock of physical laws, something which is universal, uh, may in fact not be the bedrock. It may be a sort of local bylaws uh, in a certain part of the universe. And this really is a speculation which is based on the idea that we may be due for a fourth Copernican revolution. We've got what Copernicus did, removing the Earth from the centre. Then we've got the revolution which says that our solar system is one of zillions in our galaxy and that our galaxy is one of zillions of galaxies that we can observe. But it could be we're due for a fourth revolution which will tell us that physical reality is vastly bigger than the domain which astronomers can observe even with their best telescopes. It may extend far further, and that which is the aftermath of our Big Bang may not be all because there could be many, many other Big Bangs. And so physical reality could be a combination of huge numbers of Big Bangs, each giving rise to a domain which is larger than the region we can see. This is a huge expansion of our concept. And as you mentioned, there's another interesting question. If there were other Big Bangs, would they be governed by the same physical laws? Um, are the laws of uh, Newton and the masses of the electron, etc., are they truly universal, or are they parochial bylaws in our cosmic patch, as it were? This is something we don't know. There are some theories which suggest either of those two options. And uh, one of the challenges for 21st century physics is to make these speculations more real. Now, some people say it's overambitious, but when I look back on what's happened in my subject in the last 50 years, I'm not too pessimistic, because when I was a student, it wasn't clear it was a Big Bang at all. There was a rival theory called the steady-state universe, uh, which was perfectly credible then. But now we can talk with quite precision about how our universe evolved from the first nanosecond, the first billionth of a second, up to the present. So we've made huge progress there. Um, but there's still mysteries which lie in that first nanosecond, which we can't yet probe because the physics that prevailed then is far more extreme than anything we can test directly in our laboratories. You mentioned in your piece that a few years ago you were on a panel at Stanford University and you were asked by the chairman, uh, on the scale, would you bet your goldfish, your dog or your life, how confident are you about the multiverse concept? And you said that you were nearly at the dog level. Uh, where are you now? I'm about there, but I went on to say that uh, there was another scientist called uh, Andre Linde who's developed an idea called eternal inflation, which is a, a specific version of the multiverse. And he said you'd almost bet his life. And then another great physicist um, called uh, Stephen Weinberg, when told about this, said he would happily bet Martin Rees's dog and Andre Linde's life on the uh, idea. But I should say it's speculative, but some people say it's just metaphysics. But I would contest that because it's not hopeless to expect that we will have a theory of physics which applies in this tiny, tiny fraction of a second where these 
possibilities are determined. And that that theory can be tested because it predicts things in our ordinary world. If you have a theory which uh, um, predicts the mass of the proton and things like that, then you believe what it implies even in contexts when you can't check it. It's not true to say you have to be able to check every prediction of a theory. To take another example, Einstein's theory of general relativity is believed very firmly because it's been tested in many ways. And we therefore believe in what it says about the inside of black holes, even though we can't observe there. So similarly, if we had a theory, which we don't yet have and may never have, which explains um, some features of our everyday world, and which also applies under the very, very extreme conditions, very near the Big Bang, then we would take seriously what it predicts about the Big Bang. Martin Rees, when did you first discover your interest in science? Well, I was interested in science and nature when I was small and in numbers, but I didn't have any particular focus on astronomy. And in fact, what happened to me was that in my uh, final two years at school, um, I focused on science, essentially because I was bad at languages, which I had to do if I opted the other way. Um, And then I turned out to be quite good at maths, and I went to university to study maths. But while at university, I realized I wasn't really cut out to be a mathematician. I didn't have the same mindset as some of my contemporaries who were going to be mathematicians, uh, because I realized I got a more sort of synthetic and synoptic style of mind. I like to try and think of things uh, uh, and mesh them together rather than a long deductive chain. And I thought I'd become an economist because two of my contemporaries, actually, who did maths with me, uh, went into economics and, in fact, became very well-known economists. So I could have perhaps done that route. But by a chain of accidents, I ended up being in a group for my PhD that was focusing on uh, astronomy and cosmology. And after a year, I realized this was a good choice. And that was for two reasons, really. One was that this was a time, the mid-1960s, when the subject was opening up. We had the first evidence for the Big Bang, first evidence for black holes, and uh, more powerful equipment of various kinds. So new things were happening. And it's always good to go into a subject where new things are happening, because then the experience of the old guys is at a heavy discount, and you can do new things yourself. So I was lucky. And also, I was in a good environment. I was at Cambridge University uh, with a very inspirational PhD supervisor called Dennis Sharma, who had a sort of stable of students, a few of us, and Stephen Hawking was there two years ahead of me and several others. So I was very lucky to have a start in the subject. And uh, it was a good time. But um, I would say to any young people who are now thinking about what research area to go into that astronomy is now just as exciting because in the most recent five years there have been just as many new discoveries, gravitational waves, more evidence about the Big Bang, and the universe becoming far more fascinating because of discovery of exoplanets, a discovery that almost all stars have residues of planets orbiting around them. Maybe one day there's a life on them. So there's far more now to be thought about than there was 10 years ago. So it's again an exciting time. And I'd mention one other thing, which is that uh, we depend on better equipment and also we depend very much on more powerful computers because we can't do experiments in cosmology. We can't crash two together, galaxies together in the real world, but we can in the virtual world of our computer. And a lot of our understanding of what's going on out there has come from doing computer simulations, 
making various hypotheses and seeing which hypothesis leads to uh, an outcome which matches the natural world best. So that's a method which has been very fruitful and has only been possible once we've been able to do fairly realistic computations. Mm. And what do you think of the position of science in society? I mean, we um, uh, speak to people who are who are in science and who are very forthright about their mm. contention that science uh, is somehow uh, under attack, um, that there are forces of irrationality in the world that need to be countered with with the, 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 the potency of clear thought and logic. What do you make of that? Um, well, it's certainly a concern, but I think it's somewhat exaggerated. I think um, if the polls are done about which professions are trusted, then I think nurses come out top, but academic scientists come out fourth, you know, way ahead of politicians, journalists, the state agents and all the rest. So academic scientists, if not industrial scientists, are very well trusted compared to most other professions. I think um, the apparent um, anti-science um, prominence is essentially because of social media where people who aren't well informed have a more vocal platform than they ever had. And so that dilutes the better informed uh, uh, opinions. Um, but I, I don't worry too much about it, except that it is a pity if um, young people don't learn the essence of what the natural world is like and don't uh, have enough understanding of basic aspects of science to be informed citizens because so many of the decisions that we have to take um, in um, health, um, environment or energy, for instance, have a scientific component. And if the debates to get above tabloid slogans, then the public have to have some feel for science. And I think what's very important is that the way science is applied is not a matter for scientists because the way it's applied involves ethics, economics and politics and scientists have no special expertise there. They are speaking citizens but they do have a special obligation I think because they're scientists to ensure that if their work leads to a discovery which has social impact they do have, I think, a bit of a responsibility to um, ensure that it does have a benign impact, that it's followed up commercially or in other ways, and that they uh, uh, warn the authorities if it has downsides. I think they have this obligation. And so scientists um, do need to think about that. And in my book, I uh, mentioned that I was privileged to know in their later life some of the physicists who worked on the atomic bomb project at Los Alamos. They were really, um, great scientists, and they returned to their academic habitat after World War II was over, but they continued to feel they had an obligation to do what they could to try to uh, control the powers they had helped unleash. So these people like um, Hans Bethe, Rudy Piles and Joe Rotblatt maintained uh, a strong concern and did all they could, with a limited effect, admittedly, to, um, un to uh, disarm the world. They felt it was an obligation, and they're right. And I think now today, when uh, scientists in other fields, be it those who work on artificial intelligence, those who work on genetics, they are all empowered, and they have a similar obligation, in my opinion now, uh, to warn about the uh, way in which their work can be applied. And incidentally, in this country, 
I think the relationship between uh, parliamentarians and scientists has been quite good in many respects. For instance, the law on embryo research and three-parent babies and stem cells and all that in this country has evolved because of a proper dialogue between the scientists and the parliamentarians and is therefore better than in certain other areas. The thing I see uh, developing uh, and that is something that my children's generation will have to contend with even more than I is the uh, increasing prevalence of technology um, (coughs) that is all around us. You were talking Mm. about the the, uh, physicists who worked on the uh, Los Alamos. Um, but now the people who have had the greatest technological impact on society, I mean, they are information technological experts. I'm mm-hmm. thinking of the big tech companies yes. such as Google and so forth. Mm-hmm. Do you think that uh, that uh, enough has been done to uh, manage the colossal effects that those technologies have had on contemporary society? Um, well, I think not enough. I mean, there are two classes of concerns. One is uh, whether it's good for kids to be seven hours a day looking in front of screens. But the other, obviously, is the effect on uh, on democracy, etc., of false news and, of course, the dilution of the power of national governments because of these global conglomerates which can't be adequately taxed. So I think there are uh, deep concerns. And um, I think the... Um, people I know who work in AI, um, they are themselves concerned, the academics are, but I think the risk is that they are clearly overruled if there are commercial pressures in favour of uh, certain applications. So I think it is a serious threat. And I think the people working in genetics and um, uh, related areas there, um, where we'll probably see equally dramatic developments in the next 10 or 20 years in um, being able to analyse the human genome and synthesise human genomes with particular characteristics, that's going to raise all kinds of ethical questions. In fact, indeed, in recent days, there was a report from China that scientists had modified a uh, genome in order to make uh, the children less liable to get HIV. And there's been a lot of complaint about this in the Western uh, uh, journals and among Western experts in the subject. That's Including on the Prospect website, I might add, by Philip Ball, an Uh, excellent piece that uh, should be read. I mean, um, uh, people welcome the fact that you can remove, by the CRISPR technique, the gene that causes Huntington's disease or something like that. But uh, in this case, it was thought the uh, benefit of slightly reducing the risk of catching HIV um, was not worth the uh, risk caused by the uncertainty in using this procedure at all. And so this is going to be... Uh, a kind of issue which is going to happen on a far bigger scale in future. And, of course, um, we're going to have to ask, are we happy with human enhancement being possible? It's a long way away because most of the characteristics depend on not one gene but thousands and thousands of genes. So you've got to actually analyse which is the right combination and then you've got to synthesise the genome with that combination. So that may be many decades away. But if that could be done it would lead to a fundamental form of inequality uh, between those who could do this and who couldn't. Just to come back to the book, um, finally, I mean, the, the, the core contention of the piece that you wrote for us is that uh, humanity is effectively going to come up against a, a barrier and that it will be in combination with technology and artificial intelligence that uh, humanity will be able to overcome these barriers to knowledge and, and gain access to, as it were, higher levels of, of understanding. How close do you think humanity is to facing that need for a step up? 
Well, I think it'll happen slowly. I say in my book that uh, although I'm not in favour of publicly funded manned space flight because robots can do the whole thing better and cheaper, uh, I cheer along these private companies which are uh, sending uh, uh, thrill-seeking, risk-taking adventurers maybe to Mars in the next uh, few decades and there'll be a community out there. And I think that it's those guys out there who will be the first to really modify themselves seriously because they're ill-adapted to living on Mars, they're away from all the regulators, so they will perhaps be the first post-humans, and good luck to them. But I hope that here on Earth we try to restrain all these technologies. But I think they're going to happen, and I think um, whereas Darwinian evolution takes a million years, I think there will be changes in humanity on a shorter time scale. And I make one point in the book, uh, which is slightly disquieting. It's that um, we can um, read classical literature written two or three thousand years ago and feel an affinity with the artists and authors who composed it, because human nature was the same back then as now. But we have no guarantee, indeed perhaps not much prospect, that a few centuries from now the dominant intelligence will have any affinity with us to understand in other than an algorithmic sense the uh, literature of today. So that would be a game changer, a change in something which has been constant in essentially since our ancestors roamed the African savannah. Martin Rees, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. That was the astronomer royal Martin Rees speaking to my colleague Jay Elways. And you can read Martin's piece on our website at www.prospectmagazine.co.uk where you'll also find all kinds of great stuff on politics, economics, global affairs, arts, culture and more. I'm Tom Clark. My thanks to Samir Rahim and Alex Dean here in the studio. And the bumper double issue of Prospect is in the shops now. Be sure to get a copy. The producer of this broadcast was Jay Elwes. So thanks so much for listening. And please do go to iTunes where you can read and review this podcast. And that really does help us to help other listeners find us. So please be sure to do that. Be sure too to join us again next time for the Prospect podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.